I have recently had the opportunity of returning to school, at least for a five-day period. I was invited to attend a data processing school. After the usual adjustments of trying to condition my, myself again to a classroom situation, I was captivated by the latest marvels that mankind has developed. I was intrigued by an instructor who would key in to a keyboard, a few symbols, and access a file 3,000 miles away. In only five seconds, there on a visual display was the answer. We were introduced to a new small console printer, not the large high-speed type. This was very similar in normal appearances of printers on the market today, except for the fact that this one was far more efficient than any I'd had the opportunity of coming in contact with before. As the printer started to operate, it functioned normally, printing from left to right. But then to save the time of the carriage return, it just spaced down one line and then printed backwards the next line, right to left. I was amazed by its speed, its accuracy, and notable advances this machine had made over previous models. As I examined this latest technology of mankind, my thoughts went back to my first introduction to an office machine as a child of five or six. This introduction was to an old hand-operated adding machine my father used with his clerical functions as a bishop. I thought of what a marvelous evolution has occurred in my lifetime in just the business machine field alone. For that brief minute, as my mind reviewed our progress, I also had a compelling urge to look forward, realizing how many more technological developments are yet to come. I found myself awed once again with the architecture of the Lord. As I contemplated His creative processes, here He has supplied us with all of the raw materials to take care of our needs from the beginning, the creation, until the end, the celestializing of the earth. It is in moments like this that I think of that great scripture our prophet quoted to us this morning. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. It has always interested me to note that in the scriptures, when the Lord talks about righteousness, we hear him declare abundance, fullness, and plenty. Shortage and scarcity are not from him, but are man-made because of our failure to follow his original instructions, to be fruitful, to multiply, to replenish the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over it. Now to maximize our potential, he has given us direction from the beginning on our behavior while we sojourn here as mortals on earth. He has asked us first to love him by believing on his words, and secondly, to love our fellow men enough to help bring them to a realization and a testimony of him. Christ, when confronted by the lawyer with the question, Master, which is the great commandment in the law, gave this answer, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. From this reply by our Savior, we gain a knowledge of the two great fundamental commandments 
I would like to reaffirm to you in an effort to have us greater appreciate and understand them. First, can be illustrated by an experience which occurred between a father and his son, as recorded in the Book of Mormon. Alma was a high priest of the people and lived on this continent less than 150 years before the time of the Savior. He must have been a father who had great love for his son because he called him by his own name. But as Alma the Younger grew into manhood, he departed from the teachings of his father. The scriptures record he became a very wicked and idolatrous man, and he was a man of many words and did speak much flattery unto the people. Therefore he led many of the people to do after the manner of his iniquities. After his father had tried diligently to change the ways of Alma the Younger and to no avail, he went to the Lord and asked that Alma would be given a sign that he might know of his wrongness, the wrongness of his actions, and be shown the right way to follow. A most remarkable event occurred in the life of Alma the Younger. For an angel stood before him and called him to repentance. After this great vision was over, Alma fell to the earth, so great was his astonishment. He became dumb and could not speak, and weak and could not stand. Those that were with him carried him and laid him helpless before his father, and his father rejoiced over what had happened because he knew it was of the power of the Lord. And he called the priests together and asked that they fast and pray with him for two days and two nights, in order that Alma would again receive his strength. Their prayers were answered. Alma recovered and stood before them and began to speak unto them, bidding them to be of good comfort and saying, I have repented of my sins. I have been redeemed of the Lord. Behold, I am born of the Spirit. And the Lord said unto me, Marvel not that all mankind, yea, men and women, all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people, must be born again, yea, born of God, changed from their carnal and fallen state to a state of righteousness, being redeemed of God, becoming his sons and daughters. And thus they become new creatures. And unless they do this, the warning, they can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. Alma's words become a witness to each of us of what must occur in our lives if we are to find the rewarding, fulfilling experience of being converted to the ways of the Lord. But conversion is not an end, but a beginning of a new way of life. Let me again use the example of another strong character from the scriptures to illustrate the second great commandment of what must follow conversion. The New Testament tells us of one who was among the first to follow the Savior in his earthly ministry. The scripture records, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. Now fishing to Peter represented his wealth or his ability to gain the things of the world. You will note that right from the beginning, Peter was asked to make a choice between the things of the world and the requirements of God. Peter had an opportunity of becoming converted 
as few men who have lived on the earth have had because of his associations with the Savior. The scriptures record the great witness that was given to him when he, with James and John, were taken to a high mountain apart from the rest of the world, and the Savior was transfigured before them. And it records his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as light. Even after such a remarkable witness, we find the Savior continually reminding Peter of his commitments and responsibilities. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desires to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, Strengthen thy brethren. Peter was then privileged to witness the greatest of all manifestations given by the Savior to mankind. For he witnessed the sorrow of the crucifixion and then was privileged to see the resurrected Lord. But even after witnessing the resurrection, it seemed as if Peter had still failed to catch the real significance of his conversion. After the glorious experience of seeing the resurrected Savior and the disciples were again alone as the Savior had ascended from them, Peter's first thoughts were again to return to the things of the world. And he said to those with him, I go a-fishing. And they say unto him, We also go with thee. And they went forth and entered into a ship immediately. And that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was the Savior. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? And they answered him and said, No. And he said unto them, Cast the nets on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw in for the multitude of fish. Here the Savior teaches Peter a great lesson. The things of God are above those of man. The Lord has power to supply the fishes, the things of the world, but they are secondary to his work. Then finally the great lesson of the Savior's mission is taught to Peter as they dine together. Jesus saith unto Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? And he saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest I love thee. And he saith unto him, then, him Feed my lambs. Then the question the second and third time. And finally Peter, being grieved, replied to the Lord, Thou knowest all things. Thou knowest I love thee. And Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Finally Peter understood, When thou art converted, a condition carries with it a responsibility to do something with that conversion, to feed the sheep of the Savior. The real value of our commitment through our conversion is when it's interpreted into action when something results from that which has occurred from knowing of the Lord. The lives of many of the great church leaders of this dispensation, we have seen this process of conversion interpreted into a powerful desire to strengthen the lives of the brethren. One example which has always impressed me is the story of John Taylor. The gospel was first introduced to Brother Taylor and his family in Toronto, Canada by Elder Parley P. Pratt in April of 1836. At that time, John Taylor was engaged as a minister and investigated very carefully the teachings of Elder Pratt. He wrote down eight sermons which Elder Pratt preached and compared them to the Bible to see if he could find anything that was contrary to the scriptures. He made his investigation of the church a regular business for three weeks. 
and then was satisfied and was baptized. About a year later, John Taylor visited Kirtland, Ohio. The gloom of apostasy was hanging over the city, and sadly, this dissension had affected Parley P. Pratt as he returned from his mission to Canada. Elder Pratt tried to show Brother Taylor why he thought the prophet Joseph was, was an error. To this, John Taylor steadfastly replied, I am surprised to hear you so speak, Brother Parley. Before you left Canada, you bore a strong testimony to Joseph Smith being a prophet of God and to the truth of the work he has inaugurated. And you said you knew these things by revelation and by the gift of the Holy Spirit. You gave me a strict charge to the effect that though you were an angel from heaven was to declare anything else, I was not to believe it. Now, Brother Parley, it is not man I am following, but the Lord. The principles you taught me have led me to him. And now that same testimony that you had, I rejoice in. If the work was true six months ago, it is true today. If Joseph was then a prophet, he is now a prophet. Parley P. Pratt saw the error of his ways and was strengthened and went to the prophet Joseph with, in te with tears in his eyes and asked for forgiveness and reaffirmed his allegiance to the prophet leader of the church. Truly the words of a converted John Taylor had an inspirational effect in the life of Brother Parley P. Pratt. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. All of the abundance, fullness, and plenty of this earth was given to us by God to be enjoyed in righteousness. We in turn are expected to love him to be converted to him and his ways, and to feed his sheep, to multiply, replenish, and strengthen our brethren. I pray that we may all catch the vision of what a conversion means and focus our service on the effort to build the kingdom of God here on earth, that we may be likened unto Alma, Peter, our President John Taylor, and the other great prophets and leaders of the Church throughout the dispensations of time who have caught sight of his marvelous work and proceeded to dedicate their lives for its purpose. May I add my witness to this conference that God lives, that Jesus is the Savior of this world, that Spencer W. Kimball, who conducts this conference session, here today is a prophet. Think of it, a prophet of the Lord on the earth today. May I give this witness as I know it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. A young man just under 18 years of age was visited by a heavenly messenger who stated that he was sent from the presence of God. This messenger, Moroni, was the last prophet of the Book of Mormon. The young man was Joseph Smith. Moroni quoted many passages of Scripture, most of which declared that the time had come to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus Christ in his glory. He quoted Malachi, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. This emphasizes the fact that when the Lord comes again, he will come to his temple, which means there must be a temple on earth for him to come to. He also quoted the fifth and sixth verses of chapter 4, which are slightly different from the Bible. Behold, I will reveal unto you the priesthood by the hand of Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. 
And he shall plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to the fathers, and the hearts of the children shall turn to their fathers. If it were not so, the whole earth would be wasted at his coming. It seems significant to me that among the first instructions to the prophet in the process of restoring, of process restoration of the gospel, that this work which has to do with temples and the ordinance performed therein was given. This must be a very fundamental, be very fundamental to the essentials of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To fulfill the requirements in this message, there must be a temple. Elijah must come with the authority of the priesthood, and there must be living members of the church gathering the records of their ancestors and getting the work done to fulfill the promise made to them that their sealings would also be done. God himself established the first family, Adam and Eve. The family is not an institution developed by man to be outgrown and cast aside in the course of human progress. All that is nearest and dearest in our lives is associated with our families. Love has its center here, and where love is, there we find happiness also. Truly it is not good for man to be alone. The Lord in his wisdom has provided a way for man to be happy on this earth and to carry that joy on through all eternity. The greatest joy and happiness comes through the family unit. It has been so through all mortality, so why will it not be so in the next life? This family unit is so important that the Lord has made it known to us that by the time of the end of the millennium, all of Adam's posterity who accept the gospel must be sealed together as one family by the power of the priesthood, which is the power to seal on earth, and it shall be sealed in heaven, and to bind on earth, and it shall be bound in heaven. Every person who comes on this earth must have an opportunity to receive all the blessings of these sealings if he will accept sometime before the end of the millennium. There could not be a just God if it were otherwise. The sealing blessings are obtained first through the ordinance of baptism into the Church of Jesus Christ. Then the wife is sealed to her husband for time and all eternity. And those children who are not born under the marriage covenant must be sealed to their parents, that they may receive all the blessings as though they were born under the new and everlasting covenant. Those who have died without this law may have the privilege of receiving these blessings by proxy. That is where our responsibility comes in. We must first teach the gospel to the living, then we must gather the records of those of our families who died without this law and get this great and important work done for them. The promise was given to our forefathers that when the gospel is restored in the last days, the hearts of the children shall be turned to their fathers. This, this means we must fulfill the promise to our ancestors to do the ordinance work for them. If we do not, then our salvation may be in jeopardy. Not only ordinance of baptism, but also the sealing of families together as an eternal unit must be done on the earth. Hence, we must perform these ordinances ourselves first, then by proxy for our ancestors who have passed on to the spirit world. These most sacred ordinances must be performed in a holy temple, erected and dedicated to the Lord by this, for this very purpose. In modern revelation, the Lord commanded the prophet Joseph Smith to build a house to my name for the Most High to dwell therein. For there is, not found, there is not a place found on earth that he may come to and restore again that which was lost unto you or which he hath taken away even the fullness of the priesthood. These temples are built for a special and most important purpose where the living may receive their most holy ordinances, where families may be sealed together for all eternity. The family unit is the only eternal organization. The temples are beautiful buildings, 
and rightly should be, but are not just monuments for show alone. They are the only way whereby all the righteous living and dead can have the blessings of exaltation. The living come first. Then after they have performed these holy sealings, they should turn to their fathers and vicariously open the way for their ancestors to receive these same blessings. For this purpose, family research must be done. Many choice spirits have been held in reserve to come to earth at this time so they could accept the gospel and do the temple work for their ancestors. Over and over again, I find among converts, husband or wife, or husband and wife, who are the only ones in the family who are members of the church. In most cases, they or someone in their family have a good record of their family genealogy. Some eagerly send these records to the temple for the work to be done. Many, however, have many names in their possession which are not being sent in. We must not delay. The time is getting shorter all the time. With more temples being built, more work can be done. With each new temple, approximately 3,000 or so, more names each day can be done. Do not hold these records. Fill out the regular forms and send them into the temple. Even if the Lord has inspired people to preserve these records over the centuries, if the devil can persuade us to procrastinate and not get the temple work done, he will succeed in frustrating the Lord's work. This story is told that Satan called a council of his agents and asked how they would combat the forces of righteousness. One said, I'll go and tell them it isn't true. Satan said, no, that won't do. The second said, I'll tell them it's only half true. No, Satan said, that's not enough. The third said, I'll go tell them that it's all true, but they need, there is no need to hurry. Go, Satan said, that will get them every time. Lucifer cannot win. We must do the Lord's work. For our ancestors or the earth would be wasted at his coming. It seems that the destiny of this earth depends on whether we get this temple work done or not. The gospel has been restored in these the last days, never to be taken from the earth again, and to bring the blessings of salvation and exaltation to all God's children who prove their worthiness through their faithfulness. The purpose of this earth and our life here is to give each and every one of Adam's posterity the opportunity to end this life as a family unit for eternity. I testify that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, restored in these the latter days, with all the authority and power of his priesthood to bring about the eternity of the family unit for each of us in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I am thankful, my brothers and sisters, for truth that has been revealed through the prophets of God, both in the dispensations in the past and those who have dispensed the truth in this dispensation. We are blessed with ample truth in regard to our origin, our mortal lives, and our destiny. The scriptures teach us that we lived in the spirit world before we were born into mortality. That is, we lived in the presence of God, who is literally the father of our spirits. When that grand council was held in heaven, in which all of us, no doubt, participated, two plans were presented for peopling the earth and for the salvation of man. One plan was advocated by Satan, also known as Lucifer. He proposed to destroy the agency of man and to save all mankind that not one soul would be lost. This would be accomplished through outright force and coercion, denying all persons 
the right of choice. Satan's plan of compulsion was rejected by the great council, and we are told Lucifer was angry and kept not his first estate, and many followed after him. We must have witnessed that tragic scene when Lucifer, brilliant, capable, and yet lacking in the intelligence to properly apply his knowledge, along with one-third of the hosts of heaven, rose in hateful rebellion against God. And they were expelled from heaven, retaining the, the malignant powers to tempt and to persuade men to disobey God. The other plan proposed by Jehovah provided man the right of choice that through its exercise he might become strong and advance in learning, wisdom, and righteousness by conquering weaknesses and by resisting the temptations to do wrong. This plan was accepted, and God said, We will take of these materials that are there and organize, and we will organize them into a world on which these may dwell, and we will prove them herewith to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. Now God said also, and this is most important to you and to me, Wherefore, because Satan rebelled against me and sought to destroy the agency of man, which I, the Lord God, had given him, and also that I should give unto him mine own power, I caused that he should be cast down. And he became Satan, yea, even the devil, the father of all lies, to deceive and to blind men and to lead them captive at his will, even as many as would not hearken unto my voice. Now the truth is that Satan lives. Indeed, some have seen his satanic majesty in spirit form. President Harold B. Lee warned us in these words, make no mistake about his reality as a personality, even though he does not possess a physical body. Since the beginning of time, he with his hosts have waged relentless war to destroy the agency of man. Those who teach that there is no devil or who declare him to be a figment of the imagination used only to frighten people are either ignorant of the facts or they themselves are deceived. How does Satan operate? What are his tactics? Using his superior knowledge, his unique powers of persuasion, half-truths, complete lies, the evil one uses the spirit children who followed him, which were many, plus mortal beings who have yielded to his evil ways to wage war against Jehovah and his followers. And they will, if they can, influence us to become critical and to rebel against God and his work. Thus he destroys the souls of men. The scriptures tell us, Satan stirreth them up that he may lead their souls to destruction. Yea, he saith unto them, Deceive and lie and wait to catch, that ye may destroy. Behold, this is no harm. Thus he flattereth them, and leadeth them along until he draggeth their souls down to hell. Thus he causeth them to catch themselves in their own snare. And thus he goeth up and down, to and fro in the earth, seeking to destroy the souls of men. Now the adversary knows that a little sin will not stay little, and he welcomes any and all into his kingdom by trying to get us to lie a little, then helping us to try to justify ourselves in so doing, or to cheat, 
or to steal. And some folks are indeed induced to desecrate the Sabbath day until it becomes habitual with them. Some people begin with the use of liquor just to relax a bit. Also, with drug abuse, evil speaking, disobedience to parents, or deceiving one's own companion. These are means he has of getting us to digress from the proper course. He knows full well that if continued, such diversions soon result in regret, sorrows, and losses because they lead us into greater sinfulness. No doubt one of the most infamous snares set out by the adversary is that of unchastity. The power to bring children in, into the world is God-given. And if that power is held sacred, it will result in happiness and blessings beyond measure. But if it is desecrated and polluted through illicit use, it will bring sorrow and misery and self-condemnation. The First Presidency of the Church a few years ago issued a warning to the Latter-day Saints and to all people generally against the, against the dreaded sins of unchastity. Among other things, they said, the doctrine of this Church is that sexual sin, the illicit relations of men and women, stands in its enormity next to murder. You cannot escape the punishments and judgments which, are, which the Lord has declared against this sin. The day of reckoning will come as surely as night follows day. How then may we resist the evil one? In all his evil doings, the adversary can go no further than the transgressor permits him to go. And we can gain complete power to resist the evils caused by Satan through adherence to the principle of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Members of the Church may have the blessing of the Holy Ghost as a companion as well. And when the Holy Ghost is within us, Satan must remain without. Study of the Scriptures, prayer, faithful living of the commandments of the Lord, the discharge of church obligations and duties, being consider a considerate neighbor, and using the heaven-sent program of family home evenings can provide a basis for having the Holy Ghost as a constant companion and protector, which will result in peace and happiness. Recently, our beloved President, Spencer W. Kimball, speaking to a multitude of youth, said to them that an awareness of the existence, the power, and the plans of Satan, together with the compelling and vibrant testimony of God and of the gospel and of the plans of our Father, given through Jesus Christ, his Son, and living prophets can help achieve unprecedented accomplishments which may affect our lives eternally. Yes, brothers and sisters, Satan lives. He is real. He is cunning. But you may be assured that God, our Heavenly Father, reigns over all and is merciful and forgiving to those who truly seek him. And every man receiveth wages of him whom he listeth to obey. To this I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Among the sure signs of the true church, of Christ are the accompanying spiritual gifts. This has always been from the beginning. When the authority of the priesthood has been found on the earth, it is accompanied by manifestations of the Holy Spirit. During the earthly ministry of the Savior, 
It is recorded that he went about all Galilee, healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. Great multitudes followed him, and they were healed, every one. Before the Savior departed from his apostles, after the resurrection, he said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned, and these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if, he, if they drink any deadly thing it shall not hurt them, and they shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the street and them that were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed, every one. The Apostle Paul taught the Corinthian saints something about spiritual gifts. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would, that ye, I would not that ye be ignorant. Therefore I give, unto you to, give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. Now, there are diversities of gifts, but by the same Spirit. And there are differences of administration, but the same Lord. And there are differences of operation, but, in the same, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit withal. For to one is given the Spirit by the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. And so on he recounted the gifts of the Spirit. And unto his church in this dispensation, the Savior has promised these same gifts, wherein he said, Therefore, as I said unto mine apostles, I say unto you again, that every soul who believeth on your word and is baptized by water for the remission of sins shall receive the Holy Ghost, and these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they do many wonderful works. In my name shall they cast out devils. And in my name shall they heal the sick. In my name they shall open the eyes of the blind and stop the, unstop the ears of the deaf. And the tongues of the dumb shall speak, and so on. I bear solemn witness, my brethren and sisters, that these gifts are with the church today. The sick are healed. The eyes of the blind are open. The ears of the deaf are unstopped. The lame are made to walk. The gift of tongues bless our missionaries and others the world over. The gift of wisdom and knowledge are evidenced by the leadership of our people everywhere. Devils are cast out. Spirits are discerned. The gift of faith is demonstrated on every side. Many mighty miracles give evidence that this is indeed his church, the church of Jesus Christ. All the gifts and powers and blessings that have always identified the Church of Christ are with his Church today. As members of the Church, is our faith sufficiently strong? Are we in tune with the Spirit that we might be blessed by these great gifts? Do we believe a miracle can be performed or a blessing given? Do we call upon the priesthood as often as we should to administer to the sick? Do we believe we can be healed? Do we have faith to heal? Is the priesthood always prepared to give a blessing? How strong is your faith? President George Q. Cannon said, I have felt deeply impressed that the members of our church do not value as they should the means which God has placed within their reach for the relief and healing of the sick. There is too great a disposition when sickness enters a household to send for a doctor. Instances are very common among the faithful saints of the gift of healing being made manifest in, very, in a very wonderful manner. God has not forgotten his promises, and he has not withdrawn himself from his people. But the Latter-day Saints should make use of these means more frequently than they do and put more trust in God and less in man's skills." End quote. We have been instructed as to administration very well. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil 
in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if uh, he hath committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another, that ye may be healed. And the elders of the church, two or more, shall be called, and, and shall pray for and lay hands upon them in my name. And if they die, they shall die unto me, and if they live, they shall live unto me. End quote. The accounts of miraculous healings in the church are numerous. They warm one's soul and give great strength of testimony as to the divinity of this great work. But the Lord has instructed us that we are not to boast about these great blessings. He said, But a commandment I give unto them, that they shall not boast themselves of these things, neither speak of them before the world, for these things are given unto you for your profit and for your salvation. End quote. It is not intended, it was not intended that we make merchandise of the gifts of God and shout to the world the results of these most wonderful gifts. They are given unto us for our salvation to strengthen our testimony and the testimony of others as we bear humble witness of them in our meetings quietly by the Spirit, but not before the world. Behold, faith cometh not by signs, but signs follow those who believe. Yea, signs come by faith, not by the will of men, nor as they please, but by the will of God. Faith to heal the sick is one of the most desirable of the gifts of the gospel and should be sought after by all Melchizedek priesthood holders. They should always be ready and exercise the power in behalf of those who need a blessing. They should seek to have and develop the gift of faith, faith to heal and faith to be healed. And whosoever shall ask in my name in faith, the Lord said, they shall cast out devils, they shall heal the sick, they shall cause the blind to receive their sight and the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak and the lame to walk, end quote. Administration to the sick should be done at the request of the sick person or someone else close to them, we are told, someone who is concerned about them, that it might be done through their faith. The Lord said, and these things ye shall not do except it be required of you by them who desire it, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. For ye shall do according to that which is written, uh, that which is written. Both the one receiving the blessing and the one uh, giving the blessing should be in tune with the Spirit through their worthy lives, that, and then the Lord uh, will bless them as promised. Whatsoever things, he said, ye shall ask the Father in my name, which is good, in faith believing that ye shall receive, behold, it shall be done unto you. After one has administered, uh, has demonstrated his worthiness through good works and manifest his faith through prayer and proper administration to the sick, it must be left in the hands of the Lord, those who will be healed and those who will not. We may not always understand why someone is healed and another for whom we have exercised great faith is not. The Lord said that when the elders administered the sick, if they die, they die unto him. And if they live, they live unto him. Thou shalt weep, he said, for the loss of them that die, and more especially for those who have no hope in the glorious resurrection. And it shall come to pass that those that die in me shall not taste of death, for it shall be sweet unto them. And again it shall come to pass that he that hath faith in me to be healed and is not appointed unto death shall be healed. Listen to President Kimball's logic in this regard. If all the sick for whom we pray are healed, if all the righteous were protected and the wicked destroyed, the whole program of the Father would be annulled and the basic principle of the gospel, free agency, would be, would be ended. No man would have to live by faith. Should all prayers be immediately answered according to our selfish desires and our limited understanding, then, uh, were, uh, then there would be little or no suffering, sorrow, disappointment, or even death. And if these were not, there would be no joy, success, resurrection, or eternal life, or godhood. 
Being human, we would expel from our lives physical pain, mental anguish, and assure ourselves of continued ease and comfort. But if we, but if we were to close the doors upon sorrow and distress, we might be excluding our greatest friend and benefactors. Suffering can make saints of people as they learn patience, long-suffering, and self-mastery, end quote. Even though the Lord has prescribed proper procedures in the administration to the sick, this doesn't mean that the humble prayers of faithful members of the church would not be answered. The effective, fervent prayer of the righteous man availeth much, said James. The Savior said during his administration on earth, uh, in the last, in that in the last days, men not authorized of God would in Christ's name perform wondrous works. This is evidenced by his words when he said, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew thee. Depart from me, ye that work, worketh iniquity. He gave the same warning to the prophet Joseph Smith in this day. Walk uprightly before me, that ye may not be seduced by evil spirits, our doctrines of devil, our commandments of men, and that ye may not be deceived. Seek ye earnestly the best gifts, always remembering for what they were given. They were given for the benefit of those who love me and keep all my commandments, and him that seeketh so to do. May we so live that we may always have the companionship of the Holy Spirit and be blessed by these beautiful spiritual gifts that are a part of the gospel. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.